Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From Cedarburg Public Library Radio. Our first two programs, the one on supply chains and last week's program on China and Africa, feature China and our relationship with them. While China has interest in the Persian Gulf, it is but one of many players and certainly not among the most important. Our presenter tonight is Doug Savage. He did his graduate work at the University of Chicago, one of the country's premier foreign affairs institutions. After graduate school, he worked at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations in Washington, D.C and as Midwest Regional Director of the U.S. Arab Chamber of Commerce, hence his interest in the Middle East. I connected with Doug when he joined the Institute of World Affairs at UWM as Deputy Director and as producer and moderator of the locally acclaimed International Focus TV program. In 2019, I believe Doug was elevated to to the post of Director of the Institute. We are fortunate to have Doug with us tonight to explain the Persian Gulf, the many actors, outside powers, and the multitude of issues. Doug, take it away. Well, thank you, John. And uh, I must commend you for for your cleverness in uh, inviting me to participate, knowing full well you won't be on the hook for drinks afterwards. So fair play to you. (laughs) Yes, I didn't mention that, did I? (laughs) Well, uh, thank you. And... In terms of uh, format, I mean, obviously, this is this is not a very elaborate and formal presentation. It's a conversation, so I, I like to think in if an academic conference presentation is on one end of the spectrum and a bar stool is on the other end, well, let's 
skew more towards the bar stool. So with that, I would encourage you as we go along the way, since our path is going to be rather meandering, if, if you've got a, a comment or a question, why don't you just interrupt me at that point? Because if we wait till the end, I'm sure we'll all be asleep. So uh, with that, let's get started. Okay. Well, it'll be more interesting to see more than this slide. There we go. Let's uh, start with these four questions to kind of bear in mind as we go along. First of all, how and why did the U.S. first get involved in the Gulf? And are these considerations that prompted that involvement still relevant? How has the strategic landscape changed? And what should U.S. priorities be in the region going forward? So let's start our story in the late 1960s when Harold Wilson announced that uh, the Brits, who had pretty much run the show for uh, a very long time, could no longer bear the freight of uh, both the, the Gulf and their interests throughout the uh, eastern part of the globe. And so uh, the, he announced that uh, in 19, by the end of 1971, they would be pulling out. Uh, this was not a decision taken lightly, and they had uh, just been forced to devalue the pound, which they resisted for quite some time. But finally, the, the math just didn't work any longer, and so uh, that announcement was made. So with the departure of the British sort of keeping order, that led to a bit of a quandary for the U.S., which in 1968 had its own issues. Uh, here you see Richard Nixon referencing uh, three principles that uh, he had laid down in Guam, which came to be known as the Nixon Doctrine. The first is that the U.S. will, in fact, keep all its treaty commitments. Second, if a nuclear power threatens someone we feel is a, a strategic ally, we will extend our nuclear shield. And for our story tonight, the most relevant is uh, we will provide the wherewithal for our allies in the region to defend themselves so we don't have to uh, provide the manpower. So what that meant was in the Gulf with the departure of the Brits, we had to cast around for people that uh, could play that role on our behalf. So we looked in the old family album and came up with two people. On the left there, you'll see FDR meeting with the founder of the modern Saudi state. Uh, actually, that's on the USS Quincy in the Red Sea. He uh, made sort of a, a side trip from the Yalta conference and very transactional. Uh, we would like you, Your Majesty, to, to keep the uh, the oil flowing and to give U.S. concerns a, uh, a privileged position. And on the right, we've got a more complex story. Uh, that's the, of course, the Shah of Iran. And in 1953, we had engineered a coup which uh, deposed Mohammed Mossadegh, the, uh, the elected uh, prime minister, we, there was an attempt earlier to do that but under the Truman administration, but uh, Truman didn't go for it. Uh, 
the source of the rub basically was Mosa Deck was trying to get some transparency from the Brits who really ran Iran's oil industry at the time. And they were not forthcoming. And so he nationalized the Iranian oil industry, which of course London did not take kindly to. And so they had approached uh, first, as I say, Truman, and he decided that that was not something he wanted to uh, send the, the U.S. down the road doing. But when his term ended and Ike came in and the Cold War heated up, basically, they, uh, they were able to make the case that, well, we've got a, a flaming communist in Tehran we've got to take care of. And so uh, Eisenhower gave the green light. One of the uh, the operatives on the American side involved was uh, the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt, who uh, some of you may know from the annals of the intelligence community. But uh, that did two things in terms of our relationship with Iran. It uh, sort of seared into the brain of, of the Shah that the communists were out to get him, and he had always uh, best look over his shoulder in that regard. And also his, uh, his position was guaranteed by the US. And so it was a natural that, uh, that the Shah's Iran and uh, the Saudis would have be uh, the two sheriffs that we put into place. So the two pillars then in the Gulf were Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, it's a, an interesting pairing and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of history there. And let's take a brief digression for some fascinating and additional culture. As the, uh, the Arabs of the peninsula, what is now Saudi Arabia, expanded out as, uh, you know, they, they spread the new faith of Islam, the typical policy would be to go to a, uh, an existing power and give them the opportunity to convert to, uh, to Islam, and if not, then hostilities would commence. Well, one of the first major powers that they bumped up against was uh, that of the, the Persian Empire, and the correspondence back and forth has survived in, in many forms. I think it's a, an example of me watching too many gangster movies, but I read this first paragraph and, and hear you know, sort of Goodfellas or some wise guy about it. I do not foresee a good future for you if, uh, if you don't submit. And at this point, the Persian Empire had been around for literally millennia and saw itself as the natural hegemon in the region, much like, uh, you know, Ricky, you would appreciate this, uh, China sees its position in their part of the world. Like this, is, this is the natural order. We, of course, should be the top people. So the response on the part of the Persian emperor, it's a bit lengthy, but I think it's worth it because there's just such great diplomatic snark and disdain. So I'll, I'll read it for you. How strange that you occupy the seat of Arab caliph, but are as ignorant as any desert-roaming Arab. You Arabs have no regard for God's creatures who mercilessly put people to the sword, who treat your women 
who attack caravans and are highway robbers, who commit murder, who kidnap women and spouses. How dare you pressure to teach us who are above these evils to worship God? You who have spent all your days in brutality and barbarity have now come out of your desolate deserts resolved to teach by the blade and by conquest the worship of God to a people who have for thousands of years been civilized and relied on culture and knowledge as the art of mighty edifices. I advise you to return to your lizard-infested deserts. <laughs> Do not loose upon our cities your cruel, barbaric Arabs who are like rabid animals. Refrain from the murder of my people. Refrain from pillaging my people. Refrain from kidnapping our daughters in the name of Allahu Akbar. Refrain from these crimes and evils. We Persians are forgiving people, kind and well-meaning people. Wherever we go, we spread the seeds of goodness, amity, and righteousness. And this is why we have the capacity to overlook these crimes and the misdeeds of your Arabs. Stay in your desert with your Allahu Akbar and do not approach our cities for horrid is your belief and brutish is your conduct. Well, quite the dressing down, but unfortunately it didn't uh, carry the day on the battlefield and Iran, as we know, soon became uh, part of the Muslim world. But I would argue that there is this cultural component that persists until today. And uh, 15 centuries later, let's look at an incident. There is the, uh, the Hajj, which people are familiar with, I'm sure, the, the pilgrimage, which happens at the same time for Muslims all around the world. But there's a, a lesser pilgrimage you can do whenever you have the opportunity called the Umrah. And in this case, two Iranian families were, uh, were doing this lesser pilgrimage, and they each had young teenage sons who were pulled out of line at the airport and uh, taken into a back room and allegedly sexually assaulted by the Saudi security personnel. So uh, there's a New York Times piece just explaining it, but then shortly thereafter, the scholar on the right did a deep dive into Iranian social media around the event. And of course, there was criticism and calls for you know, punishment of the responsible authorities. But then, interestingly, he said, you know, there's also derogatory epithets such as unclean dogs, lizard and grasshopper eaters, which seems to be a recurring theme, dirty Arabs and barbarians. Some claim that the incident at the airport was a clear reflection of the Arabs' character and mentality. Now, I, I share this, not, uh, not to traffic in racism, but rather that uh, I think beyond the politics, there is this cultural component that animates the situation and uh, is responsible for much of the animus. So for those of you who are still awake, we'll go back to our story. So in 1979, a very important year in the region, one of the pillars falls. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini returns from exile in Iran uh, at the head of a movement that at that point was very heterodox. I mean, the, the Shah had really lost touch. Some of you may remember the uh, celebration of 5,000 years of the Persian monarchy in the city of ancient city of Persepolis that he did. Uh, and there were just while people were hungry in his uh, in his country, there were accounts of 
the meals that were prepared, especially for Haile Selassie, one of the guests' dog. <laughs> so it did not play well. Uh, and so uh, Khomeini arrives back in Iran, overthrows the Shah, who at that time was uh, terminally ill with cancer. And so he had to travel around the world like the Flying Dutchman looking for someone to take him in. Uh, and so the first pillar fell. And we'll recall that, uh, you know, one of the functions the Shah played was uh, as sort of a bulwark against the Soviets and more generally sort of communism. So you can imagine there was even greater panic when a bit further down the road in that same year, Moscow moves into Afghanistan. Uh, for your edification, I've included a stanza from Rudyard Kipling's 1895 Young British Soldier. When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains and the women come out to cut up what, what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your god like a soldier. So, uh, let's see. Early part of the uh, graveyard of empires. So, we now have a situation then where uh, where the Shah is gone. We've got the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And so in his State of the Union address in 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter stakes out what uh, became known as the Carter Doctrine then. Let our position be absolutely clear. Any attempt by an outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America, repelled by any means necessary including military force. Now, his uh, advisor at the time was Vigna Wyszynski, who many of you will remember. Uh, in an interview some years later, he was asked if uh, he thought that arming the Mujahideen and all that followed from there was, was a good idea. And as a consummate cold warrior and saw everything through that lens, he said, what's the importance of a few stirred up Arabs compared to the freedom of Eastern Europe? So uh, that was very much in play. And within the Gulf itself, the, uh, the monarchies were finding things a little worrisome. And so for the first time, they decided to formally create an entity which uh, would allow them to cooperate primarily on economic matters, but there was some thought of some sort of combined security arrangement. And so here you see the beginnings of the, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council with the members in no particular order other than alphabetically Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, around that time, uh, one of the non-Gulf states decided to be the first to step into the breach and challenge the new Khomeini regime. And of course, is Iran and what commenced for eight years was really a, a horrific conflict in which Iraq received substantial aid from both the West and the Gulf states. Uh, at the end of it all, half a million combatants and 100,000 civilians conservatively were killed. 
and it resulted in no regime or border changes. Uh, give you some sense of the nature of the conflict. A little graphic on the left up there are victims of an Iraqi chemical weapons attack, and not to be outdone in, uh, in sort of the awfulness of the conflict. On the right, you see a uh, child soldier in the service of Iran. So it's a little wonder Henry Kissinger had his typically pithy remark of, it's a pity they both can't lose. Well, that conflict eventually ended, uh, and Iraq found itself in financial straits. And one, one of the ways you can, uh, you can take care of your debts is by taking over your, uh, your creditor. And so the position in Baghdad was, well, actually, Kuwait is an artificial entity, an artifact of uh, sort of 20th century European diplomacy. It was always historically part. And even if you accept that it is a legitimate border, they are engaging in slant drilling in which they're uh, sort of poking their, their pipeline over the border and siphoning off Iraqi oil. So something has to be done about it. Well, there was a very storied uh, meeting between the then US ambassador, April Glaspie and Saddam. And her position was, what she was trying to communicate is unlike with your conflict with Iran, don't look for the US to uh, to side with you, and in fact said, we have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflict, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Now, of course, Saddam read that very differently, saying, well, clearly this is a green light. And so uh, that's a story for another time that, that's off-told, and we all know, well, what happened after that? He uh, rolled into Kuwait, and that sent shockwaves through uh, through the Gulf monarchies. And so here you see George Bush meeting with Saudi King Fahd. And in his address on Iraq's invasion on Kuwait in August of 1990, just a few weeks or after the meeting with April Glaspie, he promises that his administration, like all others stretching back to FDR, is committed to the security and stability of the Gulf. Well, so well, before uh, the American troops were invited in, there was another offer on the part of the uh, Saudi leadership. There was a prominent Saudi citizen who had uh, a fair amount of battle experience in Afghanistan who said, you know, we don't need those Americans. I've got my guys. That's all really you need. And uh, the Saudi monarchy thanked him for his offer and decided to go with the American military. And he did not take kindly to that. And here he is saying that when the American troops entered Saudi Arabia, the land of the two holy places, there was strong protest from the religious authorities and from students. It was a big mistake inviting the American troops in and the Saudi regime lost its legitimacy. Well, of course, that, uh, set in motion a series of events which ultimately ended tragically in New York and Washington and Shanksville. So you'll recall the uh, 
the identities of the perpetrators, there were 19 in total, were uh, 15 were Saudi of the 19, two were from the UAE, and then there was a, a Lebanese and an Egyptian thrown in there. So if things had been a bit strained before that, they were much more so afterwards. And so if we can look at uh, this little graphic here, this is from the, the Washington Post, in which President Obama is saying we'll never uh, forget the brave heroes. And then the implication here is here's a sort of caricature of, of Gulf Monarch saying, yes, uh, our 19 heroes, we won't forget them either. So significantly, in, uh, in November of 19, there was a poll in Saudi Arabia in which 73% said that good relations with the U.S. was somewhat unimportant or not important at all. Mm. And shortly thereafter, a Gallup poll here in February of 2020 showed 65% of Americans have a somewhat or very unfavorable view of Saudi Arabia. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not the warmest and fuzziest of relationships at this point, but you know, we'll recall that the basis of it early on since that day on the USS Quincy was access to petroleum. Well, in 1915, I'm sorry, in 2015, there was a, uh, a significant day in which there was a paradigm shift in the petrochemical industry. You'll see uh, the top line with the arrow on it is U.S. imports, and the yellow or gold line on the bottom is U.S. exports. And there was a point in 2015 when those lines actually crossed, and the U.S. became a net exporter. So if you're sitting in Riyadh, realizing, as someone once told me in the region, I know you don't love us for our dark eyes, uh, you know, this is this is not good news. So there, there's sort of this residual bad blood over 9-11, and now the, the raison d'etre for the relationship has been seriously eroded. On top of that, around this same time, who do we see playing footsie in the uh, ante room here but uh, Secretary Kerry and his counterpart from Iran, and we have the JCPOA, the uh, Iran nuclear deal, which the Obama administration said you know, met the national security interests of the U.S., but the bottom quote here is from Saudi state television, in which basically they said this is a terrible idea, and in fact, it demonstrates we can no longer really count on America, and significantly, we should turn our focus on to Russia and China. And again, this is Saudi state television, so if it hit the airways, it was uh, likely to be at somewhat reflective of, of thinking in the palace. Well, along comes the new administration, and uh, people get a reprieve. We see in May 8th of 2018, Donald Trump announces that the U.S. will withdraw some from the JCPOA. And I don't know exactly what's going on in this picture, but. 
so there is a a feeling that somehow you know it had uh, the worst of it had been averted at least for a while and meanwhile within the palace there was a a new player I thought we'd give the German Federal Intelligence Service a, a little shout out here. And their estimation in 2016 was Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, the son of the king, was a political gambler who was destabilizing the Arab world. So interestingly, he was elevated. He was not directly in line of succession. And uh, his father sort of moved him up and let him jump the queue. And... Uh, turned him into the, the crown prince and the heir apparent. And one of the first things he did was an anti-corruption campaign, which involved imprisoning any potential princely rivals and senior businessmen and allegedly torturing several of them and demanding that their ill-gotten gains be turned over. So, uh, we see this certainly in many parts of the world where, where anti-corruption is used as a, as a tool to liquidate your rivals. He also prosecuted the war in Yemen, which we'll talk in a little bit of detail with in just a minute. Uh, of course, is the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the blockade of their GCC neighbor Qatar. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about that war in Yemen. 2012, the Saudi-backed uh, candidate is elected president. It was a pretty easy one to handicap since he was the only candidate. But in 2015, uh, a group, the initial core of that group was from a, a tribe called the Houthi, but uh, it's not strictly along tribal lines, but now it's, that's lent its name to the movement. So, uh, and they became basically Iranian proxies in the, in the conflict with Saudi Arabia. Doug? Yes. When this started, weren't the Houthi uh, not yet under control of uh, Iran? I mean, weren't they rather independent and Iran latched onto it? Right, yep, very much so. So, you know, the enemy of my enemy and all that. Uh, so Hadi flees to Saudi Arabia and a Saudi-led coalition then starts prosecuting this war with U.S. support and funding because at that point uh, the administration was happy to uh, to lend a hand in anything that would frustrate Iranian machinations in the region. So by December of that year, they're spending $200 million a day on operations in Yemen. But it just grinds on uh, a few... A few years later, by 2019, is generally considered a stalemate, and there were uh, some very unsavory things going on in terms of the way the uh, the war is being prosecuted on both sides, actually. But uh, at that point, the U.S. Senate votes to end American support, and now uh, just this year, President Biden announced that his administration would uh, end all U.S. support for the war, and as uh, as part of the consequences of, of some of those actions, review arms sales to Saudi Arabia. 
So, you see, uh, U.S. Representative Ted Lieu from California, who's on the House Foreign Services Committee, says some of these strikes look like war crimes to me. So some of the things that went on were airstrikes on hospitals and other civilian infrastructure, targeting food production and use of cluster munitions, phosphorus, use of child soldiers, resulting in what uh, the UN considered the greatest humanitarian disaster uh, of our time. So not, uh, not a great enterprise to be involved with if your image is important to you. And there were people who were quick to seize on that. Now, now we come to another character who does not get as much press in this country as, uh, as Mohammed bin Salman and MBS. But in the region, you hear whenever anyone talks about MBS, they say, no, 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 it's not MBS, it's MBZ, using the, uh, the British Z. It's Mohammed bin Zayed, who is the, uh, the emir of the United Arab Emirates. Significantly, the Emirates has the second largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, behind only China, and commands what uh, I think most observers would say is the most capable, best-equipped army. Saudis is bigger, but uh, you know, I was reading an article recently where, uh, for example, they the people in the field in Saudi Arabia are loathe when, uh, when the latest round of American weapons purchases come because now there's something else they have to learn and they never really figured out how to use the last one. So uh, reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a, a British RAF commander in Oman once. He was seconded to the Omani Air Force and there was a big push at that time to uh, have as much employment as possible go to nationals rather than uh, foreigners and they took a decision to have the aircraft maintenance done by omanis and the omani pilots all immediately refused to fly <laughs> they said well you know we love our brothers but we know what they're capable of and we're not getting into any plane that they're maintaining so uh this arab digest editor william law has a, has a good analysis he said uh, in addition to the, his other roles in the region MBZ exploits the immaturity, arrogance, and ambition of MBS to achieve his ends. So I liken it a little bit to the clever kid on the playground who, who finds the, the bigger kid and says, gee, I bet nobody's brave enough to throw the rock through the principal's window. So you can, you can get what you want done without facing any of the consequences. And in fact, uh, there's evidence to suggest that MBZ who has the current Saudi king, uh, Salman's ear, was instrumental in having him make the switch and elevating MBS. But PR is PR. And uh, in June of 2019, the UAE announced that it was going to withdraw its troops from Yemen. And uh, it's Basically, uh, they are very concerned with their image vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. Uh, you'll see there are some very large weapons purchases in the works, uh, particularly for fighter aircraft. And this just seemed like a loser for them. And so uh, they declared victory after a fashion and 
left Yemen. Now, another side story, as I said, this is a meandering tale. In, uh, in June of 2017, the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, along with Bahrain and Egypt, decided to sever diplomatic relations with uh, Qatar, which is a very small nation. Uh, you'll see here it sort of sticks up like a thumb from Saudi Arabia, and its only uh, connection is this border here. So they banned Qatari-registered planes and ships from utilizing their airspace and sea routes and blockaded the only land crossing. So... Uh, the question was, what, what was the issue? Well, uh, there was a, a list of demands. Basically, the, the accusation was that Qatar was getting a little too close to Iran. And uh, also the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a transnational organization that uh, the Gulf monarchies are, are very wary of. And during the Arab Spring era, uh, Qatar typically came down on the side of the protesters and the people trying to overturn these regimes, whereas the monarchies were virtually uh, united in their support for the status quo. And uh, the reason I took this picture, uh, and this is the, uh, the headquarters of Al Jazeera in Doha, that was one of the demands that uh, was made of them, that they immediately shut down Al Jazeera, which had a reputation of being a little bit uh, too free with their criticism of some of their neighbors. So the thought was, you know, we just have to bring this, this upstart to heel. But unfortunately for the... Uh, the, the blockading countries, and primarily, again, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, it's very difficult to put the squeeze on someone whose pockets are as deep as uh, that of Qatar. So if you'll uh, indulge me with a, a personal photograph, we, uh, last time I was there, were invited by a local real estate developer to see his new shopping mall, which was about to open, wasn't quite open to the public yet. So we all were trundled into our vehicles and with visions of uh, Bayshore or Mayfair dancing in our heads. So we were a bit surprised to get to the front door and see this. Hmm. That is, uh, in fact, all Carrara marble from Italy, which is lovingly installed by Italian marble workers. And uh, you know, he was very keen to tell us that each of these uh, medallions on the floor was unique there. There's no repetition. But my point is simply, this is the height of the blockade. And this kind of stuff is going on. It was not without impact, however. And one of the first things that became in short supply was fresh dairy products because they were uh, no longer able to, to be brought in over the land border. And so, once again, if you've got the kind of resources that they have, what do you do when you want fresh dairy products? You come to Wisconsin and buy dairy herds, fly them to Cutter, and install them in an air-conditioned, purpose-built dairy in the desert. <laughs> now, all of that 
it was well and good on the economic front, but uh, you know there was clearly a mismatch in terms of of military capability. So there was a thought that well, might the the Saudis not cross the border and not worry about the the financial side of it? And Qatar had a uh, a card to play there too. The Eludate Air Base, which is the forward base of United States Central Command, so. Uh, to overrun Qatar, they would have to overrun the uh, the base in which U.S. flies all the sorties for that part of the world. So they were guardedly optimistic that there was not a great threat. Uh, and so it went on uh, for a while. Al Jazeera reflects on what's going on here. They're saying in all of these efforts, aimed at removing obstacles to Saudi and Emirati regional hegemony. And the success of the plan largely depends on Trump being reelected. And there you see Jared Kushner and his lovely wife with, uh, with MBS. Uh, supposedly, they had a very warm relationship in which they were you know, texting one another in the wee small hours of the night. And... Uh, there's, there's a cutter angle to that, too, supposedly. There's a, the Kushner family has a very high-profile real estate development in Manhattan, which was horrifically underwater, and there was a, a major payment that was due. And they approached the Cutter Sovereign Wealth Fund to bail them out. And after considering for a while, they decided to take a pass. And supposedly... Shortly thereafter was when uh, the recommendation was made to the president that uh, in terms of the, the blockade of Qatar, we should uh, be on the other side and back the Saudis. Doug? Yes. Question from Peter. Why is Qatar singled out? Is it Shia? And No, actually, it's the same uh, version of, of sort of Wahhabi Sunni Islam as uh, as Saudi Arabia, although it's practiced in a less austere manner. I think in, in they were Trump, basically too big for their britches from the Saudi perspective. Uh, and Trump to, uh, accused Gutter uh, of uh, financing terrorism, do they? Well, they would say no, certainly. And, uh, you know, they've actually played a useful role when the U.S. was trying to engage in the initial uh, dialogue with the Taliban. They they agreed to host those efforts in Doha. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I have never seen anything that's, that's sort of a smoking gun. Uh, but isn't it isn't it their connection to Iran that gets that label applied? It is, and they would be very quick to point out that in terms of just economic activity, trade, the UAE actually has more commerce with Iran than they do. And the source of their wealth is an enormous gas field, which they share with Iran. So they argue, you know, there's just the realities of, of nature require that we cooperate with them on this uh, thing. And it's not like, you know, we're, we're partisans of, of Tehran by any means. So a lot of it is, uh, you know, I think 
the Saudis and the Emiratis really do feel like that the natural pecking order in the region puts them at the top and, and people who aren't willing to toe the line and go their own way are, are problematic. And again, particularly Al Jazeera, it's hard to, to overstate the irritant that, uh, that some of the, the other governments find that to be. Yes, it's kind of like uh, some of our embassies objecting to the voice of America and some of its reporting. Right, right. So, at the end of the last administration, we have the Abraham Accords sign. Uh, Abraham of course being a, a patriarch that's recognized by both Arabs and Jews. The lineage goes through, uh, through Isaac for the Jewish branch of the family and Ismail for the Arab branch. So some clever person somewhere in, uh, in Washington came up with that moniker for these uh, agreements. Basically, it's normalizing relations between Israel the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, the, the primary reason, of course, was they have a, a common animus towards Iran. And so it's a way of, of solidifying the region against Iran. But uh, they each have other reasons as well. For, uh, for Israel, it allows Mr. Netanyahu to play peacemaker and deliver uh, better relations with the Arab world while avoiding dealing with the Palestinians in any way. For the UAE, they can look constructive uh, around, again, some of these major purchases, the F-35s particularly. And also they see a, a complementary uh, opportunities in terms of what they do and what Israel does economically. So there's uh, you know, a thought that there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, Bahrain is basically the stand-in for the Saudis. I mean, for, for those of you who uh, may be a bit rusty on the geography, Bahrain is a, a very small island connected to Saudi Arabia by a causeway. And Saudi Arabia being the site of the two holy places, Mecca and Medina, has to be a bit more careful with uh, things like a, a rapprochement with Israel, because that was for so long in the Arab world, the, the non-negotiable red line that no one should cut a separate deal. And in fact, we saw when, uh, when Sadat went to Jerusalem and the Camp David Accords, Egypt was in the wilderness for, uh, for a, a, quite a number of years. Interestingly, just in the last day or so, uh, the UAE has expressed some displeasure with Mr. Netanyahu because uh, there was a, a scheduled meeting that was canceled because he was touting uh, the UAE and MBZ in his campaign literature. As Israel, as you know, is having an election next week. And saying, see, I, I brought the Arabs on board. And they were saying, well, wait a minute. We, we'd prefer you don't use us in your campaign. 
Well, Bahrain has also another interesting issue too, in that it's a minority Sunni leadership. It is, yes, yeah, it's a it's a, a Shia population and a, a Sunni. But I mean, they really, for all intents and purposes, do not have an independent foreign policy. I mean, they are, they are really a sort of a wholly owned subsidiary. They would not like to hear this, but of of Saudi Arabia. Uh, one of those crazy little stories you hear over the years. Uh, supposedly, when uh, things were were pretty tight socially in Saudi Arabia, as they remain today, of course, uh, but a little less so in Bahrain, there was the ability to uh, to purchase alcohol in Bahrain, and so the common practice became to fill your uh, windshield washer tank in your in your car with alcohol and drive it back over across the causeway until the the border guards got savvy to that and made people wash their windows in front of them about midway through on the causeway but but I digress <laughs> so in uh, January of this year seeing which way the wind was blowing and seeing things not progressing the way the uh, the blockading countries would like uh all was forgiven and Qatar was welcomed back to the fold and here you see a shot from the GCC summit in Saudi Arabia in which uh, MBS and the emir of Qatar are fast friends once again so this slide I think leads us to uh, some of the Biden administration's recalibration. Uh, Freedom House does very good work and uh, produces a, a report each year on freedom in the world, uh, looking at countries and territories around the world. So on a, a score of one to 100, countries are listed as either free, partly free, or not free. Well. The Kuwaitis this year should be very happy. They made it by one point. They, they just made it over from not free to partly free. But the rest of the GC GCC countries are uh, well into the not free category, including Saudi Arabia, which is uh, a paltry seven out of 100 by their estimation, which puts them in, uh, in the kind of global company you can imagine. I think uh, North Korea is like, two in, in their list. So I include this simply because whereas the previous administration had very little thought to such things, uh, here you see President Trump extolling the virtues of large weapons purchases versus the Biden administration in which campaign uh, statement from candidate Biden said, We'll reassess our relationship with the kingdom and U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen and significantly make sure America does not check its values at the door in order to sell arms or buy oil. And uh, just a few weeks ago, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, says the president's intention is to recalibrate our engagement with Saudi Arabia. So seeing that, uh, there's a certain amount of bet hedging going on. Here's a, a quote from uh, an entity you, I'm John, you're probably familiar with. <laughs> uh, 
commenting on Saudi Arabia's intended purchase of Russian S-400 air defense systems and Su-35 jets. The negotiation process is underway. And remember the Saudi state press saying, you know, we can no longer count on these Americans. We should look to the Russians and the Chinese. Similarly, uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov of uh, Russia was just in Abu Dhabi earlier this month and was touting regular confidential contacts with leaders of the Arabian monarchies and Mr. Putin. Meanwhile, across the Gulf, things are not terribly uh, rosy in the land of the Islamic Revolution. So mainly due to the sanctions, a third of the population at least lives in poverty. Uh, recent estimates are that year on year food has increased by 67% last month. And uh, COVID, like everywhere else, has impacted it with an estimated 15% decline in the Iranian GDP. And this last one, I think, is, is very interesting. Because remember that the raison d'etre of the government is this fervor for the Islamic revolution. And in recent polling, 32% of Iranian respondents described themselves as Shia. Most profess no religious affiliation or identify themselves as agnostic, atheist, or Zoroastrian. So two thirds of the population no longer sees itself as being in the club which is worrisome if you're the uh, ruling elite. And those Zoroastrians are holdovers from the, from the grand old days. Right, right. So where do things stand right now? It's interesting because uh, we're kind of at an impasse. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor said pretty much the ball is in their court with regard to the JCPOA. The Iranian position is that we were compliant. The American administration under Donald Trump put the sanctions in place, basically abrogating the agreement. And so if you were the first one to break it, it's incumbent upon you to uh, come back into compliance before we can talk. So in February, uh, the P5, uh, the permanent five members of the Security Council plus Germany, who were the signatories on the JCPOA, uh, proposed a meeting in Europe to sort of get talks started. And the Biden administration expressed a willingness to attend. On the other hand, uh, the Iranians said, no, no thanks. Now, one of the things that had happened in the intervening period was the uh, the American strikes, which I think were you know very measured and not terribly significant in all of this. More importantly, I think the Iranians who have been involved in statecraft for many millennia see that uh, Biden had. Uh, put a lot of stock in returning to the JCPOA 
and they see him as somewhat boxed in and you know are are unlikely to uh to want to come to the table until they have extracted everything they possibly could and there's a very real reason to to want these sanctions off because they truly have been effective in that regard i mean they, they've basically ruined the uh, the economy Meanwhile, in all of this, who's looking on but uh, the members of the, the Gulf monarchy? Here you see the Saudi foreign minister, which seems to have a certain air of, of panic and desperation to it, saying, well, well, keep us in the loop, you know, consult us, let us know what's going on. So uh, obviously, they have seen the, the, the winds shift markedly between the Trump and Biden administrations. Meanwhile, the other player in all of this is uh, Israel. Israel, And uh, when Benjamin Netanyahu met with Biden uh, in late in February, you can see here, he told him, with or without an agreement, there's a regime whose flagship goal is to destroy us, and I will do everything I can, everything in my power, to prevent it from attaining nuclear weapons. And so, uh, you know, we have, we have that, concern for the Biden administration as well, because at, at some point, uh, if the perception was there was an existential threat, there's a possibility of unilateral action on the part of the Israelis, which they would not like to see. So let's just uh, look at how the various parties are recalibrating, uh, starting with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They want to uh, continue their efforts to sort of bring the rest of the GCC in line and solidify and expand the anti-Iran coalition, discourage U.S.-Iranian rapprochement, certainly, but then they also have to navigate these new values and priorities of the Biden administration. Uh, I think they were very comfortable with the transactional nature of the previous administration and this whole idea of not checking our values at the door to sell weapons or buy oil is not what they wanted to hear. And again, you know, uh, a desire to hedge their bets with engagement with others, including uh, China and Russia. China is less active in the Gulf because they seem to have put most of their chips on the Iranian side of the equation with the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's, difficult to uh, to play both sides of that so to the extent uh, that either one is is significant i would say at this point it seems like russia is more interested in in playing on that side of the water doug yes do you think that this the by playing the the values card this is a way in which the us is going to be able to reduce or pull out of the middle east well, that's a question, you know, uh, and again, you know, some of the questions that we started with, you know, what was the original impetus to be there in the first place? And, and has that changed, uh, including the petroleum scenario, you know? Uh, so for Israel, they would very much like to build on the Abraham Accords and become integrated into the regional economy and the security structures. 
Their goal certainly is to encourage continued U.S. pressure on Iran and discourage a return to the JCPOA, which they were certainly not pleased with. And just to, to remind everyone, they're still there and they're still willing to use force when needed. You'll see occasional strikes against Iran's proxies, which are now on you know page 15 at the bottom these days when uh, some malicious base gets bombed by the Israeli Air Force. We really don't hear much of it. Doug, we got another question on the Arab, uh, the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. They were never given much publicity by the Trump administration. Was that a missed opportunity? What do you think? Well, I think uh, to the extent that it's not just in response to Iran and is genuinely a way of, uh, you know, promoting, you know, for the UAE, for example, is very interested in, in some of Israel's high-tech industries. You know, if, if we could build on that and not have it just be sort of, we're, we're the anti-Iran club, I think it, it really would be quite significant. Uh, now, of course, the people who are left out in the cold in all of this are the Palestinians. There's once Israel becomes sort of integrated into the, the regional picture uh, with their neighbors, I think there's there's even less incentive on their part to uh, to in any way accommodate Palestinian interests. So, uh, but there's not much they can do about that, the Palestinians. So you know there there was a lot of sort of disappointed and angry rhetoric but at the end of the day that's it's just well and what is what is the general attitude of or of not general what are some arab countries attitude towards the palestinians in this process as well well you know i mean uh certainly there have been incidents i mean the palestinians were uh very supportive of iraq in the invasion of Kuwait. So that is not forgotten. There are long memories of, in this region, of course. And so uh, that was not good. Uh, to the fact that uh, in, in some cases they were expelled in large numbers after that. Yeah, I mean, the, the particularly, you know, some of the regimes have always paid lip service to it. But at, at the end of the day, other than, you know, sort of basic aid here and there to, to build a hospital here and there. You know, there really was not a deep and abiding diplomatic or political commitment to it. It was, it was useful. It was, uh, you know, we, we can give you a free press and we can give you political rights after we liberate Jerusalem, you know, kind of thing. You know, it was a, a useful cause for a while. And I think that that's sort of passing from the scene. And I also think, there's a generational aspect to it. People like MBS and uh, people of his his era did not grow up with the same history and the same, you know, sort of 1948 birth of Israel and, you know, everything that followed from that. So that the idea that of having a more, uh, again, transactional relationship is no longer something that, that's beyond the pale for a lot of people. 
Well, let's look at Iran. Uh, they will continue to test Biden's need for a deal by uh, insisting on the dropping of sanctions. And interestingly, much has been made of them uh, sort of uh, abandoning the terms of the JCPOA, but they've been very, very careful. Uh, and there's really nothing that's been done to date that couldn't very easily be walked back. So, for example, enriching uranium, I think it was, it was some some odd number of nine point something percent they could uh, they could do under the terms of it. Weapons grade is like far more than that. They've said they're going to start enriching it to twenty percent. So they're not saying we're going to enrich it to weapons grade immediately. Uh, they curtailed the inspector's ability but didn't throw them out of the country. So uh, they really would like to see the, the deal be back in place, obviously on their terms, so that they've been very careful in sort of abandoning the, the terms. And again, nothing that couldn't be walked back. Uh, they'll want to continue the perception of their, their regional influence and their, their natural place as the hegemon with these armed proxies. And they'll also maintain an open line to, uh, to the P5 plus one governments. Uh, there was something recently where they were responding to a report of uh, communication between the US via the Swiss and they were trying to downplay that, saying, oh, no, no, we're not talking to the Americans, but it's natural that we would, you know, sort of keep We're the always door talking. Open. Right. <laughs> and then significantly, the most important thing I think they'll need to do is just manage domestic unrest. Uh, again, the sort of revolutionary zeal on the part of the population has long since waned, and people are in very hard economic straits at the moment. Uh, and again, there's a generational aspect to it. I mean, there are people who didn't grow up under the Shah who just grew up not being able to dance in public. <laughs> so uh, we saw on a few occasions, largely after elections, uh, really significant unrest and, and uprising. So we've got uh, an election coming up in June so we'll see what happens there. Uh, and finally, the United States, what, what should we be doing? And I would argue, you know, we should continue to engage with Iran as far as possible, but we can't appear to fold, despite Biden perhaps have, uh, boxing himself into a corner or uh, doing anything that will alarm our regional allies, uh, particularly the Israelis. I think we should encourage the Abraham Accords framework. Uh, it could be very useful and beneficial to everybody. But again, you know, prevent Israel from feeling the need for unilateral military action. And finally, uh, you know, as the administration has made clear they're going to be less transactional than the previous administration and use values to inform some of their decision making. So I guess our exit question is, what are our policies and priorities right now going forward? 
So with that, thank you for your attention and uh, open it up to a wider discussion. I'll, I'll start with one, an observation uh, is when, when we try to make decisions between values versus interests, there are costs and consequences to both of them. And, uh, and there needs to be priorities. And I don't think in this particular case, I think we're leading with our hearts and not our brain. Well, uh, they were very calibrated. I thought the, the Biden response to uh, the release of the intelligence report on the Khashoggi murder was interesting. I think just today he made a statement about uh, why he did not sanction MBS. And he said that would have been without precedent that the US sanctions a, a allied head of state so that you know we can we can do up to but not including <laughs> the, the top responsible party. Okay. Just Rick. Yep. So I asked a question from the China viewpoint. As you pointed out in your, one of your early graphs, the crossover point with the US is no longer the major importer. We're no longer importing more oil than we're exporting from the Middle East. Then, then the uh, logic for us to be the, uh, the, the gatekeeper or the, or the referee in the Middle East maybe it doesn't apply like it used to apply. We're in, and on the other hand, China is uh, highly dependent on the Middle East and we're spending all our resources to ensure that they have a stable supply of oil. Why don't we turn it over to China? Right, right. Well, I mean, and, and that's a fair argument to be made. But isn't that what's, what's sort of happening anyway? I mean, not, not just China, but Russia and, and other regional powers beginning to play more, more of a, a, a prominent role in, in how we look at this. Right. Well, Russia's screwing around in Syria and, and China has their base, but in, is it Djibouti and Somalia? Mm -hmm. But that's not really the Persian Gulf. So I'm not saying we should do this. I'm, I'm being deliberately provocative since you know a lot more about this region than I do. Why should we, why should we continue our present role is my question. Because of Israel? Right. Well, I mean, you know, if, if the initial two priorities were keeping the Soviets out and uh, securing a, access to, to cheap oil, well, obviously the Soviets are no longer an issue. Uh, and nor is, is, from the U.S. perspective, uh, to the extent that it once was anyway, uh, access to the oil. So, yeah. And the other sort of successor issue was their assistance in countering terrorism. And there's a certain skepticism about, you know, the, their willingness to do that. I mean, the, Saudi Arabia particularly played uh, the game for, for decades in which it promoted the, the kinds of movements that uh, could sort of metastasize into violent extremism abroad. So they funded madrasas, you know, the, the schools in Muslim countries in Africa and, you know, all over the world. And 
basically it's like okay yeah fine if you people want to be you know sort of as Vigno Brzezinski said stirred up Muslims you can, you can do it somewhere else in the world just stay out of the kingdom so uh, yeah I don't know it's it's a it's a interesting point I mean and and really that that's one you know would be interesting to well in those countries don't don't talk to any of the Middle Eastern countries or the Persian Gulf countries about their human rights violations yeah there is that too I mean uh, again as, unless you know the previous administration was less squeamish about that sort of thing but uh, right I mean that that's a an advantage that uh, that China particularly has in many places around the world. You know, they say we want copper at this much a ton, and how you get it to us is your business. So, yeah, we don't hector them about you know well the, the copper miners' rights of being violated. So. Peter, anything? Your mic. You're being Marcel Marceau uh, at the moment. There you go. <laughs> no, I was just. Um, I I I always thought that it was just you know uh, a remarkable um, abuse of of any framework of civilization uh what was going on in, in yemen and con and continues to this day and i can't i'm just stunned and amazed reading about that place and looking at the international rescue committee numbers and stuff like this <clears throat> about what they're doing there and so my only cynical reaction is you know so much for arab brotherhood and and muslim solidarity you know and uh blowing the living daylights out of people left and right with Raytheon, um, you know, laser connected missiles. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, that one, it would seem to me with 14 million people out of a population of 29 million, so half your population in Yemen, um, you know, it seems to me would have reverberations for, you know, the next, the next 50 years. In, in all of that area, in, in that hugely strategic area. But because of the fact that, you know, it's Yemen and, and they produce cot and right. Right. You know, this, this mild narcotic and as well as labor, you know, for the Gulf and for Saudi Arabia and places like that, um, you know, doesn't elicit the same type of, you know, strategic impulses, I think um, that, that might otherwise be there. But uh, it's an interesting Sudani connection in that conflict as well. You know? Yes, yes, and uh, with Sudanese with Sudanese soldiers, with, with Sudanese army guys coming. Yeah, and the Sudanese have done this stuff, as you probably know, in in, a, in various places in the uh, in that particular part of the world too. Right. Um, you know, they've been at war for so long. You know, when you, you could even argue since 1956 when they gained independence and the South rebelled, <laughs> and they've been they've been fighting in one form or another, other than an interregnum for about eight or nine years there in the in the mid in the mid seventies, uh, early eighties. But Doug, yes, we've been looking at this at the relationship between 
the Sunni Arabs and Iran. But is this really a Sunni Shia kind of relationship or is this a Persian Arab kind of relationship? Well, I think, uh, again, as we said at the outset, you know, they're in most regions of the world, there is someone who thinks they are the natural hegemon. And uh, when they're not, it's an aberration, you know, and certainly that's the case with China, right, Rick? So uh, I think that's the case with Iran. I mean, they, they think, of course, we should be you know, the, the big dog on the block. Uh, and again, yeah, I mean, as I try to, to get across, there is this, this cultural animus. I mean, they, they would say, you know, for 5,000 years, there was a, a very high level of, of Persian culture. Now, who, who are these people to just by, you know, the luck of geology that gave them oil under their sand uh, to try to play that role. Well, let's, we're coming up on the magic hour. One last question. Well, go on, I guess, continuing my, my line of question, what should the role be of the United States in, in foreign policy in the future? Are we to be continue to being the post World War II referee in all these regional conflicts, or, or should we have a different, more self interest driven role? That's just my question. Mm. I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't have an opinion on what the answer should be. Right, right, and and that, you know, there are examples of that in this part of the world, but it, it pertains everywhere. You know, what, yes. what what is the role? I mean, uh... why are we fighting in Afghanistan? Kissinger made the point that China's getting a free ride in Afghanistan. Controlling the uh, Uyghur and separatists that are fighting across the border. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, are we we really are we overreached? Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like it. Um, and again, you know, there was an era where where there were very clearly identified interests, in particularly in the Gulf, when. I don't know. Has that era passed? I mean, do we no longer have an abiding reason to to be the the sheriffs in the region? Because it seems like we no longer have reliable proxies the way we once did. I mean, for for all his many uh, shortcomings in his heyday, uh, the the Shah's Iran was you know a, a pretty effective force in the region. Well, at that time, we were trying to protect our oil and, and keep Russia out. Right, right. That, But that, that game is over. In the Abraham Accords, they really bothered me because it was, you know, it was from the United States point of view, it was to prop up Trump's re-election and from the Israeli point of view to prop up Net, Netanyahu's re-election and put us right in the middle of the Sunni Arab conflict. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens next week in Israel. It's, you know, I mean, Netanyahu has defied the odds on many occasions, but I don't know. It's just, he's one step ahead of the sheriff this time around with his indictment. So. <laughs> He'll get reelected. Well, Doug, thank you very much. It was really excellent. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you for your thank attention. You. And, and, and with humor.
and I owe you at least two glasses of wine. <laughs> I won't say no. <laughs> and next week, next week, we, we end up this 2021 Great Decisions with Peter Cranstover asking the question, globalization? And also, thank you to the Cedarburg Friends of the Library for sponsoring this program. Mary, thank you and your people. <laughs>